Welcome to a very special episode of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This is an episode that uh, I very much came up with at the last minute, and my uh, regular guest, I believe this is the fourth appearance for Tom Ratzloff, was willing to go along with this. Just in honor of the presidential election in the United States, we decided to have a slightly shortened theme show about presidents. Uh, we're only looking at mo four movies this time, so... Uh, it should be an interesting show, and again, we have less points to work with, 40 points as opposed to 60 in previous episodes, so we'll we'll see how this goes. So, Tom, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. And just if you aren't familiar with the show, uh, there may be spoilers uh, for the four movies that we're talking about. We're going to be reviewing uh, Steven Spielberg's Amistad. We're also going to take a look at uh, Oliver Stone's W., then uh, we're going to go way back uh, to the 60s with the original version of the Manchurian Candidate. And at the end, we're going to go way, way back to pretty much the very first feature-length Hollywood film ever made, a movie directed by a man named D.W. Griffith called The Birth of a Nation. This show will get political, so if you don't like politics, probably uh, you may want to skip this one. I think. As it happened with the four movies we're looking at, which you can't find four more different films, there are themes in each of these movies which sadly apply to 2020 and the 2020 election and what's happening in the United States. Did you find that? Oh, yes, very much. In a couple of cases, slightly surprisingly, but they, uh, they are definitely there. But they're also entertaining movies. No, all, all of them, I think, are worth watching. And so they, I think they are, if people yeah. aren't political, they would still find things of interest. You know, especially, for example, if they enjoy really strong acting, well, uh, Amistad is filled with some very fine performances, and uh, including one of my favorites, Anthony Hopkins, playing mm -hmm. uh, play, playing an important role. Yeah, um, he plays Quincy Adams, which is very, yes. very much what one of two presidents that appear in that film, in case you're not familiar with Amistad. And I think Frank Sinatra's performance in uh, The Manchurian Candidate might be the best uh, performance I've seen of any of his movies, uh, that I've seen anyway. I don't pretend to have seen them all, but... And I haven't seen it. He did win an Oscar for From Here to Eternity. I haven't seen that movie. So uh, we might as well just dig in here and start talking about uh, these uh, four films. Brig off the coast of Long Island can only assume that the charge is murder. We do hereby claim salvage on the high seas of the Spanish ship La Amistad and all her cargo. Your Honor, here are the true owners of these slaves. These slaves, Your Honor, are by rights the property of Spain. You and this young so-called lawyer have proven you know what they are. They're Africans. Congratulations. What you don't know is who they are. This could take us all one long step closer to civil war. Immediately surrender! These goods! 
our president has appealed the decision to our Supreme Court. We have to try the case again. I will call into the past and beg my ancestors to come and help me, for at this moment I am the whole reason they have existed at all. This is the most important case ever come before this court, because what it in fact concerns is freedom, the very nature of man. And the proof is the length to which a man will go to regain it once taken. He will break loose his chains. He will decimate his enemies. He will try and try and try against all odds, against all prejudices. Get home. Starting off with Amistad. So back in 1997, Steven Spielberg tried to do a thing that he did in 1993, where in the summer of that year, he released a dinosaur movie called Jurassic Park. And within the same year, in December, he made one of his most powerful films, Schindler's List. So combining that the, his popcorn sensibility with his serious chops as a filmmaker, in 1997, the sequel to... Jurassic Park The Lost World hit theaters was not as well received as Jurassic Park as one might predict and then in around Christmas of 1997 Amistad came out and was going to be another kind of big brutal serious film from Spielberg initially it, it got a lot of attention from critics it was probably one of the early favorites to get a best picture nomination at least and be possibly nominated in several categories. What sort of happened to it, I think, is it would have been, it was back when they had five nominees, it probably got sixth place in voting. Uh, a little British film called The Full Monty snuck in there and got the fifth Oscar nomination and kind of uh, stole it away, away from uh, Amistad. And so for some reason, Amistad did get a few nominations, the most prominent being Anthony Hopkins for Best Supporting Actor, but it, it certainly did not do as well as it would have been expected to do. And I'm not sure if you have people list, like even their 10 favorite Steven Spielberg films, that Amistad comes to mind as quickly as, uh, as say, Schindler's List and, of course, E.T. and Jaws and, and all of those. Interestingly enough, this, he was a busy guy for that year because about six months later, five months later, Saving Private Ryan came out. So he was working a lot and he was on a little bit of a roll because when you look at Amistad, it is a very good film. It just somehow got lost in the Oscar shuffle of 1997, which was kind of the year of Titanic, even though there were there were several really good movies that came out that year. So Amistad is based on a true story of a, a, a slave ship called uh, Le Amistad, where the those who had been captured and were being sent into slavery took over the ship and killed the uh, Spanish, their Spanish captures. And then it, the ship was discovered in the United States and these slaves were put on trial for murder. And, and then it's about the team that moves in and tries to argue uh, in their defense using several different methods here, including looking at property law at that time. You mentioned in the introduction you love the acting in Amistad. Uh, what's your overall opinion of it? Very positive. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. 
and I also found it extremely interesting. I mean, in in 1997, Spielberg and everyone else involved knew a lot of the history, but now when we look at it again, we get to see it from a different perspective. And it's really interesting because in some ways, it almost seemed to potentially at least predict what's been happening in, in recent years. And of course, that also makes it rather discouraging because the film, the characters in the story are contemplating the possibility that though what they're doing is for a just cause and a right cause, it might well lead to civil war and when hopkins mm -hmm. character even says that if if so if that's it so be it bring it on because this is a more important fight and you almost think that there's a possibility again and given the events of very recent uh, of just this week we know that someone tried to take over a government in one of the states of the united states and it seems like it's a reaction to a lot of things but one of them could be race Anyway, it's sobering I, from that perspective. I, I also feel like, yeah, it, it, it does foreshadow the Civil War and a lot of things which are appear to be on the side of right, in my opinion, and I think the opinion that history is going to be siding with, could potentially lead to more strife in the U.S. And, I mean, there is talk that there could be another civil war, another separation between, to be perfectly blunt, the states that thoroughly support Donald Trump and yeah. if he loses that election and if people don't accept it and there's an uprising, I mean, I, again, I don't want to be doom and gloom with this show, but I mean, I, I kept thinking about that when I was watching Amistad and also with the birth of the nation yeah. that uh, when, when certain power gets threatened, then they will fight back in a violent way. And I mean, some of that's already happening. And, and we and we do see it in Amistad. So I, I like it. I was glad to revisit it. It was my first time seeing it since 1997. I remember liking it, but not loving it in theaters. I think I'm still in the like, but don't love. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why, what's holding me back a little bit. So I, I have things which I really, really enjoyed. But even some of the things that I say that are positive, I'm going to be having some caveats with that. The big breakout performance is Jimon Hansu. And yeah. he plays one of the free men who have been illegally stolen and taken from his part of Africa where he's supposed to be free and then put on a slaver ship and they pretend like they're all from Cuba where slavery was legal at the time. And Jumon Hansu, I think, deserves a lot of credit. Since then, he had Oscar nominations for uh, a movie called In America and also Blood Diamond, and I thought he was very good in those movies. If I was to come up with a criticism of him, he plays things probably 10 times more intense than they sometimes have to be. I, I think some things in this performance, sometimes it's justified, but my favorite scenes with him are the quieter scenes. The scene where he has where he's trying to communicate with John Quincy Adams, the similar type of scene he has with Matthew McConaughey's character, where, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out. But when he's kind of shouting and looking tough and intimidating, uh, sometimes I found that a little bit much. That's a picky point with his. But I understand and I'm glad that he got a, a, a career and more work after this film. It wasn't kind of a one-off type of thing. No, in his, in his uh, good moments, he's quite good. He is best in scenes with those other actors. But let's face it, everybody's better in scenes. Anthony Hopkins and Matthew McConaughey and 
Well, Pete Postlethwaite, although in this film, he doesn't have much to do with no, the character. No. I mean, when you're working closely with actors like that, something rubs off. I'll mention Pete Postlethwaite because that's an actor, unfortunately, I don't think enough people know. Uh, Pete Postlethwaite uh, worked with Spielberg only on a few films, Jurassic Park being one of them. And in this film, he was also a father in the movie In the Name of the Father. In some comedies, Brassed Off is one I'm thinking of. Steven Spielberg actually called him uh, the greatest living actor at, at the time he was alive. And he plays kind of the main guy prosecuting uh, the slaves. And in many ways, he's, he's kind of representing the, uh, the Spanish queen, who's an 11-year-old, played by Anna Paquin, coming a few years off of her Oscar win for the piano. Now she is a very uh, well-known career as an adult actor as well. Uh, I'm not sure about her. I think they, Spielberg picked a bunch of, he can work with anybody. He yeah. picked a bunch of actors. And I think some of his casting choices worked really well. And some of his casting choices, not so much. She's barely in the film. It's yeah. not, not too distracting, but I'm always happy to see her in a movie. I'm a fan of hers. Hopkins, no doubt, gives the best performance in the movie is John Quincy Adams. He brings an energy. It's a supporting role because he has, he kind of appears for a little bit in the beginning. He kind of shows up late in the second act. The third act is basically him giving a long speech to the Supreme Court. And he's engaging through the whole thing. I do think, though, it is one of the ones where Hopkins used his technical nature as an actor. He came up with the physicality. He came up with the voice. And once he had those, he was good to go. And then it was just kind of going along, knowing his lines, not bumping into the furniture. That's always his line. He, he does give the best performance, yet I, I feel like there's still a little bit of a, a slightly superficial quality to it. But again, I think if you were to pick one actor from the, this great cast to kind of lean on, it would be Hopkins' performance. But uh, he, has, he has a few more subtle more subtleties than Hansu has, for example. Yet I think oh, those yeah, are the yeah. two best performances in the movie. Matthew McConaughey is a problem, though. How so? He's miscast. Um, He's miscast. His line delivery is wooden. Yeah, I, 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 could, I was not terribly impressed. But I don't know that it was McConaughey's fault, necessarily. He's also played a lot of lawyers. He has, he has. He's played a ton of and I think he probably got this role after in 96 when he was in A Time to Kill, because it would have been the time that they would have been casting for this one. Well, one thing that he is used for in this film, not only his character, but frequently his character, is humor. And he handles humor well. There isn't a lot of humor in the film, but I suspect, and I and a lot of it centers around his character, or at least his character's involved. And I'm suspicious that perhaps that's a reason why Spielberg cast him. I don't mind him in it, although it took a while. The first couple of scenes, I completely agree with you. He seemed completely out of character. If I could guess, I'd say Spielberg himself identifies with that character most of all. And mm -hmm. he even has even Spielberg glasses throughout. He has yeah. characters in films that very much represent him. And I, I think that's that's what he was doing there. But I'm not sure that he's the right actor for that this particular role. And some moments like when 
some things are really big that he plays. Like, and it, it, part of this is the Spielberg melodrama. There's this, one of the three court cases goes their way. And literally, it sounds like something out of a sitcom. Matthew McConaughey jumps in the air. That, that's too big. And then uh, when they get a disappointment, he goes and he just throws everything off of this table and reacts poorly. Again, I, I just thought he, w- he was quite big. And sometimes McConaughey can be big and it can work. But this seemed like a more sedate character. And so those bigger yeah. choices didn't work. But if he's playing his one of his other roles, it maybe would work uh, a little bit better. Yeah. I'll, well, there are moments, too, though, when, when the humor is understated. And those are stronger moments for him. In in fairness, I'd say in fairness, and that's uh, perhaps a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, in fairness to both McConaughey and Spielberg, it seems like the American way to always express anger by throwing things off desks. Mm-hmm. I can't begin to count the number of times I've watched something in a film or on television and maybe even said out loud, I don't know, you'll have to ask whoever I was watching it with, did I say that out loud? Uh, please spare me the cliched reaction nobody ever throws everything off their desks and and breaks windows just because they're angry it shouldn't be in films and television it's just garbage it always takes me out of everything so if it's Stanley it makes sense but this feels like a very like this is a costume drama it's a period piece yeah however when when his character is characterized as a dung scraper i laughed out loud i just had a point my favorite joke I didn't. I didn't like. I, I thought some of that stuff with, with with the slaves talking to each other and the way they're talking to each other. It seemed a little bit cutesy. And that Hollywood movie, more than in like a serious look at this material, some of those like I don't know if they're comic relief touches. They felt like cutesy ideas that Spielberg had uh, working with the screenwriters. And again, I didn't think that they were as effective as when they were going for more serious moments like the the brutality of uh of the backstory for for being captured and then what goes on on the ship and like everything that happens before we actually see the opening sequence which in itself is quite brutal i I thought all of that was quite effective that was probably the Mm -hmm. the stronger point in the film i like other than the fact i i like the court business i felt found each piece though melodramatic again it felt like a hollywood version of a court scene as opposed to what likely happened in the true story well that probably could be said also of and has been said also of uh for example schindler's list spielberg is more of a realist than a naturalist he tries to manipulate things to make statements and uh, i'm not excusing it i'm just sort of trying to explain it he wants to make a point and he wants to make sure we get point. On the other hand, related to this kind of, is uh, something that he does in this film that I found quite interesting. Only a few of the lines that we, the audience, wouldn't be able to understand are translated in in text. Very often, we're left wondering what those characters were actually saying. And that becomes really, really important in this story. I mean, no lawyer was able to help them at all until they started to understand some very important things. Once they had a translator, once they could communicate, everything changed. And it's a bit of a gamble. After all, we're watching this film, we're hearing all of this other language, none of us knows what is being said, and then one or two lines are translated. That's a recipe for losing the audience really quickly, you would think. But 
as it turns out, it isn't. It actually drew me in. It, it forced me to look much more closely at facial expressions and body language, which is something that we all should be doing anyway when we're watching any kind of visual medium. Pay attention to that. I like that choice as anyway. well. We, we reviewed the first episode you were, you were on with me, 12 Years a Slave. And I mm. talked about how much greater my reaction was this time to when I first saw it in theaters. I was kind of hoping that with Amistad, I would say it's a bit better than my memory of it was. One of the things I think, and again, this is probably projecting a 2020 type of thing on this movie that was from 1997. The reason I think now I'm in a place where 12 Years a Slave is a much superior film is because 12 Years a Slave is told from the black perspective. And Amistad is not. I, in fact, I might argue that it's in danger of being a white savior picture because yeah. it's McConaughey and Stellan Skarsgård, even though he kind of takes a, a villainous turn in the end for some reason, I have no idea why. And certainly Anthony Hopkins, who's you know the former president who comes in and delivers this uh, amazing speech in front of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, of course, um, this, this is dropping in... Uh, just before the American election, but of course that's a major part of what's what's going on as of today. They're doing confirmation hearings for the, the new uh, Supreme Court nominee. The one thing I'm really confused by in that sequence, because every other time I've seen scenes from the Supreme Court, the justices ask questions when the lawyer's presenting. And in this case, they just let John Quincy Adams go on for about half an hour and they never do ask him a question. Again, I felt like it was very much a for your consideration. You have arguably one of the greatest actors of all time in this role because Spielberg can work with anybody he wants to. And he just letting Hopkins show off what he can do. And it is, it is remarkable. I'm glad he got an Oscar nomination for this. But at the same time, I, I, I guess my brain was working a little bit too hard with this one. It's a really remarkable story that I don't think a lot of people still know about. One of the many, many stories of slavery uh, connected to the United States. But really, it, this involved Cuba, it involved Spain, and it in, involved uh, sections of Africa. So it really is a global story. Of course, it uh, all lands in the United States of America, and we have a Hollywood budget, Hollywood director, and A-list cast to tell the story. And I, I, again, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's still kind of a little bit to me in the middle of the pack, maybe a little bit better than the middle of this pack of four. Well, you know, I agree with all of your criticism. At the same time, I think some of some of the reason why Amistad was not as uh, successful as it might have been that perhaps it um, it tried too hard. I I I quit counting the number of lines that sounded like you know the the theme being stated, uh, not the theme of the film, but but of a speech. The number of quotable quotes in this movie is surprising when when we're looking at it from a 2020 perspective or even back then the character of adams describes there being only one rule for lawyers whoever tells the best story wins and it's almost mm -hmm. like we have spielberg trying to do that here i'm going to tell the best story so i can win and, and and that's not a positive thing it's not a terrible thing to have quotable quotes in in a movie just as it isn't as a play in a play how many times we quote hamlet uh, the difference is Hamlet works better. And as I said, I think perhaps it's trying too hard. And, and that is a problem for Steven Spielberg, which he did not overcome in this movie. 
I, I hate to label his films. Uh, this is his second black film with a color purple being his first one. Yeah. I, and I, again, that I, one was I think that was a better film. That was a much better film. I, I'm just curious what an African-American or, or as we saw with Steve McQueen, who's a British man who who's black with 12 years a slave, what they would have done and the way they would have approached uh, this material. And maybe, maybe it would have been a bit more effective. I don't want to take anything away from the achievement of Amistad and The Color Purple and the fact that Spielberg is willing to broaden his horizons. And it's not just doing the ETs and the Jurassic Parks but or the Holocaust I, film. I also wonder whether if the film had been made by, let's say, a, a British filmmaker using mostly British performers. No, there are a few in this movie, but um, Quite a few. Yeah. if that perspective had been the perspective of the filmmakers. I have a feeling that Britain wouldn't have been shown to be quite the great heroes that this film shows them to be, most notably uh, and most bad. And the, the worst note in, in the film, as far as I'm concerned, is the message that comes from the, uh, uh, the British admiral who has destroyed that supposedly non-existent uh, fortress in Africa <laughs> where slaves are stored. He's destroyed it and then he sends the message back i don't remember what the message was i only remember thinking oh come on now the british were far from perfect and just because they had decided slavery was wrong they didn't suddenly become these great avenging angels and and wonderful just as many british slave traders as any other nationality but uh, anyway maybe maybe spielberg just really liked working with british actors like the and wanted to make sure there would be more of them i don't know Nigel Hawthorne and, of course, Hopkins himself from Wales. One last thought, and then we'll move on to the next review. We haven't, to this point, mentioned Morgan Freeman. Uh, I think one of the biggest <laughs> sins of the film is having Morgan Freeman in your movie and not giving him much to do other than to wander around. He has a couple little moments there, but he's almost forgotten in this film. And I feel like there should have been more for... That character should have been fleshed out more, and I think Freeman should have been allowed to do more because he's right up there with Possible Thwaite and with Hopkins as, as one of the greats. Yeah, and the character honestly seems unnecessary, but that's a waste of a character, too. I have two more things I want to say about the film. One was an idea that was shared by, by uh, one of the characters and then came up yet again, and it seemed quite interesting. The idea that I think the statement was... Right now, I am the whole reason they have existed at all, referring to one's ancestors. Um, and when you think about modern times in the U.S., everybody wants to invoke the founding fathers. That's, that's interesting and inspiring. But of course, if your ancestors weren't assholes, that's fine. But if they were, and they all were to some extent on the issue of slavery, anyway, I found that interesting. The other thing was, at, at one point, I decided to look up the word Amistad because I hadn't encountered it before. The word means friendship. And to me, that was so ironic that I had to mention yeah. it. You know, uh, it, it was an accident because, I mean, the ship was named that. Spielberg didn't invent yeah. the name in order to establish the irony. But Wasn't much friendship on that slave ship. No, it was a slave that. ship. But yeah, there's a kind of a friendship that happened at the end as far as this cross-cultural experience, as painful as it is. I, I wouldn't dissuade people from seeing Amistad. I kind of would like to promote no, it and have more people 
it out. So I, I, I'm coming across harsh. I come across harsh on Spielberg films because people will claim he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. I'm not sure if I'm there yet. It takes a while for me to get there with most Spielberg films, not all. This is one where I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, me too. Mr. President, what place do you think you have in history? In history? In the history, we'll all be dead. <laughs> something I don't know about. You're a devil. Devil in a white hat. Enhanced interrogation techniques utilize fear scenarios. You mean like pulling out their toenails? <laughs> I'll never get out of Poppy Shadow. Who remember the son of the president anyway? John Quincy Adams. That was like 300 years ago, wasn't it? And you may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? It's my war, not his. The American people want revenge. Whose job is it to find these damn weapons? Following in your father's footsteps there, Bushy? Hell no. No way in the world I'd want to do that. Okay, Tom, here's a connection for you. The main president featured in Amistad was John Quincy Adams, who was the son of John Adams. So he he became president just like his father. Now we're on to W, which is about George W. Bush, who was the son of George Hubert Walker Bush. And I believe those are the, that's the only other father-son combination who have been president of the United States. And uh, given the heaviness of the movies that we are dealing with, and the fact that I, I am an Oliver Stone apologist in many ways, for some reason, I had the best time watching W of any one of these four. And it was actually better than I remember it being when I was so excited to see it in theaters. It is by no means a perfect movie. I've got my criticisms of it. But it's a somewhat comedic look, even though there's some serious scenes, at kind of how George W. Bush became the president and his time as president of the United States and towards the end, kind of what the legacy he's leaving. What was bold about this film is that George W. Bush was still the president of the United States when this film was released. So there isn't like some sort of an epilogue where we find out what happened in the last years of his presidency. No, he was still the president on the day that this movie was released. So I am a fan of W. There's a lot of uh, good things I have to say about it, but I, I'm curious what you think. Um, well, I'm opposite of an Elvis Stone 
apologist. Usually, if I see yeah. the name Oliver Stone, I think, oh my God, another 14-hour epic that should be an hour and a half. Never, ever, ever have I seen a filmmaker who's more verbose, except with W. Honestly, I was yeah. shocked. It was never did I feel like something that was included in the film should not have been there. Yeah. Never did I feel that anything was allowed to go on terribly long. It was... Um, I think it's the best Oliver Stone I've seen. I haven't seen as many as you. I've seen some that were very successful and have had an awful lot of positive reviews. I think this is the best of them. That's one of the reasons, though, because I was kept interested throughout. It's it's definitely his tightest film, I would say, since probably... There are some that have been a little bit shorter, but like it was more in kind of the early days of when he had Platoon and Wall Street, where you're sticking to about the two-hour mark for a film. He has his epics. He has his JFKs and Nixon and some of his Vietnam films, which are longer, uh, for sure. I happen to be enormous fans of those movies, but I, I understand lots of people are not. So I'm happy to hear that this was a bit more of a pleasant surprise for you. Oh, it was definitely, yeah. Yeah. I quite enjoyed it. I, I think, you know, a big plus, much like we talked about with Amistad, this cast is is something else. There are some that are stronger than others, but Josh Brolin anchors this film beautifully as George W. Bush. And I, I kind of, watching it, forget that he's not actually George W. Bush as the film goes along. And somehow he, he does that in the, the younger scenes where, he you know, he looks more like Josh Brolin himself. They certainly have him when he is uh, Bush is older and has the reading glasses and all of all of those scenes that he has uh, in the Oval Office. I think they're beautifully done. Where I kind of fault the writing and Stone, and maybe that's why it was a tighter film. The Stone wasn't a screenwriter on this one. Where I fault the writing is where they try to cram in some famous Bushisms and they they cram them into the movie out of context from when they were actually said, just so that it could be included so people in the audience could go, hey, yeah, he said that. That's funny. I thought some of that cutesiness in the writing is is a is a bit of a problem. I really like Jeffrey Wright. Uh, he played Colin Powell. He has a particularly strong speech, very much arguing uh, against the idea of going against the UN to get involved in the war in Iraq, which felt quite true. And then later we have to see the poor man in the UN trying to sell a war and a situation that he himself didn't believe in. So those were some highlights for me. I, I But I also just was just entertained. It was a, just a, a nice watch. I found myself, I felt the same as you about the, the Bushism. And for a while I was uh, I was a bit confused about them. And then I realized, well, that there's the power of the media for you. Because in one of those moments, it was the first time that I actually noticed a Bushism, you know, ling linguistic ineptitude. I'm trying to be generous. <laughs> in the context, in, in the film, in the story itself, he was um, he was under a lot of pressure and in a hurry and was stopped and interrupted by a reporter in a situation in which he was feeling very, very stressed. And I wondered, and I wonder now, particularly after all of us having having uh, seen seen W stand on a stage in front of an audience and make them roar with laughter when he said, but I look okay now or whatever that famous line was by comparison mm -hmm. to Trump. Maybe this is more true to life. 
perhaps a lot of those Bushisms were the result of pressure, more pressure than the man was able to handle for whatever reason. I mean, some people can't handle pressure because they can't handle pressure and some people can't handle pressure because they're in way over their heads. And maybe in his case, it was a bit of both. Stone and the screenwriters take a lot of pains to make it look like that he's in the shadow of his father. Yeah. And somewhat in the shadow of his brother and that the family, I, I think the family would have objections to this, but that Jeb was the one that they were grooming to be president and W kind of came in there and, and did it, but it was never good enough for his father. And we have some scenes like that, which are kind of somewhat dream sequences, a bit fantastical. We have James Cromwell, who's very famous for uh, playing the farmer in, in Babe and playing a whole series of villains in other movies, playing um, yeah. George Bush Sr. quite effectively as well. Even though I'm, I, from everything I've heard about Barbara and George Bush, they were very supportive of, of W. They may not have agreed with everything. I think that part rings true that George yeah, yeah. Sr., didn't want to intervene and try to influence his son's decisions because his son was now the president. But this this whole thing about you've ruined it for Jeb, the Bush name is tarnished yeah. forever and all that. I mean, the, the fact is, and we do see it as it as it goes through, we, we cannot forget that he was not a good president. All right. No, it's just, no. We had somebody who is way, way, way worse over the last four years. Yeah. And make no bones about it. I mean, that's why I'm doing this show is because I, I hope to goodness on November the 3rd that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. And there may be some things, too, with W where he might have had a little bit of verbal dyslexia, where Biden's been very yeah. open about his, his stuttering and how he misspeaks. And, and, and instead, it's just more, a little bit more of a pride thing. Oh, I didn't. I, I kind of meant to say that with W. But I mean, it, I think it does a good job of looking at the alcoholism and just the flaws in his character. But I think Brawlin does a nice job of humanizing W in, in many ways. I thought the only, to me, the only one that didn't completely work, and a very good actor, Thady Newton, who I, I quite like. She's on a show called Westworld. She's been in a lot of different movies. She plays Condoleezza Rice. And Condoleezza Rice, who's an incredibly intelligent woman, appears as a bit of a cartoon character in yeah. here. I, I thought that was that was the one that was most distracting to me. Richard Dreyfus does a decent job of playing uh, Dick Cheney. I, I thought they did a, a nice job of casting most of these these actors. I mean, not yeah. all of them looked exactly like the people they played, but yeah. So I mean, I I guess that that would be my biggest thing is the, is the writing and just kind of that that particular. That particular characterization of Condoleezza Rice uh, kind of bothered me. Well, watching this film, some things really bothered me a lot, but they're not problems with the film. They're more problems with the, the way many Americans view their presidency and the willingness that they have for uh, rewriting history to suit their own purposes. And, you know, some of that is a criticism of many, is it many Democrats right now, or is it maybe more CNN attempting to rewrite history in a sense, the same way Trump does? Trump likes to say, well, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm the greatest. I've done more for black Americans than anyone since Abraham Lincoln. You know, absurd lines like that. But CNN is filled with righteous indignation over Trump and things Trump's done. And they try to present the idea that no one has ever done anything like this. They try to go farther than simply to say he's the worst. They say no one's ever done anything like this. And this film in particular is filled with examples yes. of people doing the same kinds of things. They just didn't take it to the, the ridiculous extreme that Trump has. Ideas of the evangelical warmongering, you know, 
God is on our side and that sort of thing. Americans have always done that. And when Trump does it, it seems even more offensive because like the opposite of anyone who has any values whatsoever, religious or otherwise. And yet he still he still employs that rallying cry. And who is he making war against? Well, he is actually making war against any American citizen and many allies. He's making war against anybody who doesn't match his view of the ideal human being, like Putin and Kim Jong-un. So, as, as far as the religious angle of things, Trump doesn't believe anything. He just he just says these things. Right? He he doesn't have an honest belief. Whereas I do, I don't doubt the Butches and their and their faith. You know that they no, were. No. You know, the, and and actually, I, I was impressed with how that's handled in the film. And even like there's the the pastor who kind of questions how at points Bush takes his, you know, uh, born again angle and, and, you know, starts to approach it in a kind of a way to, to work to his advantage, which is not exactly what, what was the point when he was in kind of a, a bad place. So I, I think there's, I don't know. I, I just think it's the, the perspective thing, the, the unilateral way of going and doing whatever you want is consistent with the W. Bush presidency and the Trump presidency. And we see how yeah. defying the rest of the world and just being doing our own thing, you know, is is present and how that can start to happen within the inner circle uh, of an administration um, like this one is. Even though much, and, and not that Bush hasn't, or Trump, sorry, that not that Trump hasn't had smart people in his administration, but he doesn't listen to them. No, he doesn't really listen to anyone, uh, except no. Rudy Giuliani. And the two of them are off, in this, off on the same planet and have the same weirdly colored glasses that they see everything through. So it doesn't surprise me that he does sometimes listen to Giuliani. It's unfortunate. Well, um, one scene I also liked was between Bush and Cheney, where... Oddly enough, like Bush actually stands up to Cheney and says, orders him and says, like, I remember I'm the president. There is that belief out there that Cheney was just bullying and telling Bush what to do for, for eight years. And I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think Bush was a proud man and he would, he would go with these decisions as ill-informed as, as they were at times. And he had some bad people like Donald Rumsfeld in particular and Cheney that were giving him horrible advice when he should have been listening to the Powells of the world and, and approaching things that way. But ultimately he made his own decision and he stood by it, but it did appear like he would listen to what other people would say, but they do still portray him in this movie as uh, somewhat cartoonishly uneducated. Probably. I don't, I don't think it's too much. I don't think it, it could have gone into a real stupid direction. And I think it, there's, there's more intelligence in that part of that's Josh Brolin's performance gives it this this other layer uh this is not a cartoonishly stupid man but this is a guy who is wrestling with all of these things and this is how he got into this situation which he couldn't get out of with the the war in iraq and certainly the uh the false information about weapons of mass destruction he was he was poorly informed at times of course he was also he also lived by that texas philosophy you know 
anything is justified as long as you prey on it and do it like a Texan. He was a bit prone to that. Well, he was he was raised to be. And of course, that's part of the, the problem in America, isn't it? That's a very dangerous way to live your life, believing that absolutely uh, anything you decide, no matter how underinformed and how overzealous you're being, it's all justified if you've preyed on it. And if you do it like a Texan or do it like an Oklahoman or yeah. have you. Of course, the part of the problem with that is that what's Texas filled with? Bullshit, cow shit, and oily slime. Of course, it also has Austin. It is money. It, it might be a good thing that the film was released before W was uh, out of office because in a way that meant that because they couldn't put the final end statement onto it, you know, the historical end statement, they don't now look like fools or implying that he was the dumbest president the U.S. has ever had because he wasn't. Yeah, unless you do the sequel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, no, now they have a president who's less intelligent and believes he's a genius. And that's far worse because W never be a genius. You know, he had a, a, a better a better understanding of what he knew and what he didn't know. So as you said, he tried to listen. He didn't always, but he tried to listen to his wife about some things, including education. I've often said with George W. Bush that I think I disagree with him being president, but I think he'd be a fun guy to sit and watch a baseball game with. Oh, and absolutely. I, I also think if he'd been, been the commissioner of baseball, which is that what particular his chapter, real dream job was, right? Yeah, He, he would have thrived and some of the some things in in history would have been different i don't know if al gore was president on 911 how that would have gone but the that generation of of wars probably would not have happened or if they happened it would have been uh in a different in a different way. There wouldn't have been kind of the revenge-seeking focused on Osama bin Laden. There might not have been an ISIS. There's a lot of what-ifs. You never know. Things might have been worse than they are now. But now we're in this place, which is uh, really, really interesting. So, um, yeah. So I, I would encourage – not a lot of people have seen W either. I would say some people should check – Check this film out, particularly if you're interested in the beginning of the 21st century, taking a little bit of a, a look, maybe some of it's fictional, but it's an interesting look at, at the Bush presidency. And Oliver Stone shows a bit more restraint in this film than he does in some of his other films. I think everyone should see it for historical reasons. It's also entertaining and well acted. Oh, yes, very much so. Thank you.
1962, when President Kennedy was uh, president and still was a year away before his assassination, the movie The Manchurian Candidate came out, and uh, the idea was a group of captured soldiers during the Korean War. They all come back and claim that one of the soldiers has saved their lives and is a hero. But as it turns out, they all seem to be having this dream where initially it looks like they're at a garden party for some people. It appears as different things for other people. But then they sort of see beyond that and it looks like they were actually captured by the the communists in Korea and some mind control was was put in for some psychological tricks and that this hero has actually been trained to become a, a bit of a, a super soldier for the Communist Party and uh, to do the will of outside forces. You mentioned in the introduction, this is one of the great performances from Frank Sinatra. He's one of the uh, soldiers who's captured. He plays Major Bennett Marco. And we see a lot of the film through his point of view where we see these dream sequences which are are quite elaborate there's some interesting stories about sinatra sinatra on his albums and his films did one take only so director john frankenheimer an exceptional director he was given a pretty much impossible task to do with these dream sequences where you have to have a completely different setting with a completely different group of actors that sinatra's key in this shot and they do a 360 pan around and when you come around then you see a completely different set and because of frank sinatra john frankenheimer had to choreograph that and do it all in one take so coloring my praise of sinatra's performance is the fact that he was not the easiest guy to work with no <laughs> and i'm a fan this is coming from a fan i love his music i like seeing him in films but he was not the easiest guy to work with and he unnecessarily complicated some scenes uh with the manchurian candidate some other actors to mention sorry go ahead that that explanation does help one to understand how completely bad he can be in some films and still be very good in this one uh, he was bad in many films because um i doubt that he was ever good in a film because of that that's eric there there's a bit more than a bit of of hubris and then i mean that's just he was a superstar and i and he would his name would get some films sold, and I, I'm sure that helped to get this movie made. Particularly with his political nature, I think this would have been a controversial film in 1962 to release. But that, I think, would be a reason why he took, must have taken it extremely seriously. I mean, if the results are any indication, he took it extremely seriously. Yeah. Perhaps that's why, because he was very political, recognized yeah. that regardless of your opinion, this really does matter. It does. Yeah. And particularly at this time, there's a real, uh, like in action, the Cold War, they were in the, the middle of the cold war so this was serious stuff and this was not as recent as like when w they're doing the w movie and he's still the president but uh the stakes were high for a film like this sinatra himself is not a manchurian candidate a manchurian candidate is played by lawrence harvey uh who plays raymond shaw who is the guy who supposedly saved his entire company and brought them back home. If he, he has been trained that if he plays solitaire and the queen of diamonds comes up, that any suggestion he hears, he will enact whether it's dangerous to him or not. Getting back to, I'll get back to Lawrence Harvey in a minute. A couple of the others I want to mention, 
Janet Leigh, uh, we mentioned her, of course, when we reviewed Touch of Evil, plays Sinatra's girlfriend here. Sinatra's having kind of a PTSD moment on a train, and she comforts him. And strangely, just on just meeting him once, dumps her fiancé and then becomes uh, totally devoted to him. I think some of that's fairly convoluted to have the romance in there. I think she has some good scenes. It's not the most important role in there, but they also don't give her nothing to do. There's something about Janet Leigh where she was given some roles where in lesser hands they could have been just kind of an empty character but somehow she makes it a lot more interesting than it has any right to be and that's certainly the case with this character she plays and the the one to me the performance of the movie is angela lansbury so she plays yeah raymond shaw's mother mrs eleanor shaw Isolin, who is married to a senator based a bit on Joe McCarthy, I think, who wants to be the president, and she is ambitious, as is her husband, which leads into some spoiler territory later in the film, which I don't know if we need to go into, but you think of Angela Lansbury as the kindly murder-she-wrote lady here. She she is a very complex villain, and it's a a wonderful performance from her. She has such an eclectic... I I, I saw her on the Broadway stage once. She, She is a great actor, and this was younger Angela Lansbury, but she uh, she steals this movie from everybody, as far as I'm concerned. Kind of like like Hopkins in Amistad. I mean, her her scenes have such energy to them, and when she can be one way, but then she turns another, and within the scene, then you're just like she becomes frightening in many ways. So those are kind of the four I want to talk about. Yeah. So I'm not letting you get a word in edgewise, but what do you think of the Manchurian Candidate? Oh, uh, generally, I I enjoyed it. I found it very interesting. Frank Sinatra's performance wasn't surprise. I didn't expect him to be that good. That was experience talking of seeing him in many, even in the comedies. <laughs> he was just, uh, he was not Dean Martin. All, all those comedies he made with Dean Martin, he was not Dean Martin. So as I said, his performance impressed me. A lot of things impressed me about, about this movie, watching it again, uh, if, if I have one caution, it's don't be the kind that condemns them for being 1962, not 2020. I mean, the film begins with a, the ridiculous cliche. The sergeant is coming to collect the soldiers. So where does he go? The local brothel. And then later on, there are a few other things, little tiny moments that one might say, well, this was it. But a, a big one is the racism connected to not the character of Chun Jin, but the character of the... Uh, uh, that his character pretends to be get the job as this valet, a horribly cliched and quite racist, but he was using that day. A lot of people would be highly critical of that. I would have to say, remember it was made in 1960 and in 2050, lots of people will look back on things that we've done and said in 2020 and they will say, I can't believe they were so racist or that they were so sexist or what have you. We're, we all live in the times that we live in. And if we have blindnesses that are social, well, we all share them. And someday we'll see through them. I've lived a few decades. That's happened for me. I no longer think a lot of things I thought when I was younger. And I would no longer say some of the things that I might well have said at some point or another when I was younger. We all learn. That's the nature of humans and time, you know. Anyway, the film starts with that. One of the very first things about this film, though, I think, I think you'll laugh at this. I had to stop 
and double check the credits because I would swear the voice of the narrator was Orson Welles. Um, so I looked it up. His name is Paul Fries. Oh, he has a very Orson Wellian voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's profoundly interesting. Wells has one of the most good voices I've ever heard. I could have done it without the narration because it's only at the beginning. It doesn't, they don't continue with throughout. It's kind of this thing that's introduced and then abandoned. And yeah. I think it was supposed to be. This is a reporting of the story of them rescued and getting back to Washington, D.C., and then later New York. And but there, it's, it, it felt that dated the film. Yeah, it did. And you're right, it was unnecessary. But I did enjoy his voice. I, I like the fact that, uh, again, this is about storytelling technique. I like the fact that some things are given away from the beginning, but other things are withheld. One of the things that is always enjoyable in a tragedy is that we know how it's going to end. It's all about the getting there. And on the other hand, one of the things about a mystery that's so interesting is that we don't know everything and we want to find out. And it manages to marry the two, which impressed me. One of the things that makes this topical, by the way, is this communist, this communist hysteria that exists time. That historically is extremely true through the, the 50s and 60s. Communist hysteria was, was crazy, it's especially the 50s. And at times I've been wondering whether Americans aren't there again. It's, it's not as big, but let's not forget when Trump made his, let's pretend this is not a campaign campaign event at the White House. Someone from the crowd, when he was uh, criticizing, mischaracterizing, and slandering Kamala Harris and called her a socialist, someone from the crowd hollered communist, and Trump said, yeah, probably. I began thinking, here we go again, you know? Another thing I, I enjoyed about it was the acting, as you mentioned, quite a few strong performances. In particular, our favorite, Angela Lansbury, very much not playing the nice lady role that we've seen her in too many times. Well, I guess too many times because her television series went on for a decade. So. And this was well before the TV series. So. Oh, it was. But I also was quite impressed with the filmmaking technique that was employed in quite a few scenes. I was reminded of certain certain moments in, in that Orson Welles movie you and I talked about it in an earlier episode and we were marveling at the different shots that he had and I was reminded of some of those techniques at times it seemed like he was perhaps copying Wells but why not if the effect is great one moment in particular that stood out for me was uh, a scene in the study Angela Lansbury's character is now not really hiding her sinister motives when she's talking with her son and the camera is very low to get the angle of her as being very tall we see some of the ceiling there are splashes of light and shadow across the ceiling and she's moving across the setting and at one point is standing directly behind that giant queen card costume uh, that figures very prominently in another portion of another scene in the film it was it was so effective that i actually pressed pause to just stare at it for a while because it was such a powerful image and perfect for this film in fact i think that image should have been the movie poster because that is the definitive moment in the film visually very very powerful shot there's her evil harsh angry face great moment and uh, a great use of the camera so in this one film, I became very impressed by John Frankenheimer, the director. Yeah, he, he had his his great films and he had some duds along the way, as everybody does. He did a lot of television towards the end of his career as well. In, in general, I thought the, the acting on the whole was better than most of the things that I can remember seeing from the early 60s. Yeah. And, and, um, it, and it was generally quite natural, especially for the time, with 
some exceptions, most notably uh, all those indignant senators. We do have an image of, of politicians sometimes becoming righteously indignant over things and, and becoming overblown. But this was overblown for overblown, I thought. Mm -hmm. So it, it had it, its, um, its weaker moments as far as acting is concerned. There were some moments in The Birth of a Nation that I thought might have come from the same place. Ignorance of other people or another race. And in, uh, in The Birth of a Nation, we see that most obviously from uh, the actors in blackface. In this one, we see it in the treatment of some, but not all, of the Korean characters. For me, just, okay, first of all, the, if I'm going to make a connection between this film and where we are now, this film very much looks at how a hostile foreign power can infiltrate the American government, which, again, I would argue happened four years ago. Some people will deny that, and potentially could still be involved this year. And it's just... The whole thing is 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 wildly fantastical in the Manchurian Candidate, but yet I I feel it it makes sense and it works. But I, I think that's something we can still kind of relate to, and just the levels of those who want power and want to do it in kind of a negative and deceptive way, and how they will go about doing that and lining up with adversaries. I think that's that's all in this film. The acting I I want to criticize in this film is, as it happens, the Manchurian candidate himself. He's played by Lawrence Harvey, who is you know a, 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 a decent British actor at no point did I ever believe he was American. No, I agree. His voice, he's a thick British accent throughout. I, I don't think, I mean, he had the look, I suppose. I, I think they probably could have gone with any number of other actors to play that role, and I'm not quite sure. We just talked about Amistad, where, oh, well, and even uh, Thady Newton, who's in W, is British, uh, playing Condoleezza Rice. But in the other movies, we had British actors playing Americans, and yeah. they're no doubt that they were American. I mean, Hopkins is a little bit showy in the things he does with the voice, but he was totally convincing as John Quincy Adams. Here, there, there didn't even appear to be an attempt by by Mr. Harvey to to try to play an American character here. And I just don't know if he maybe didn't have the ability to do a dialect or try to even neutralize his voice into something that was somewhat American. And, and then why that happened. And I, I don't know why I didn't notice it. This is one where I've really, I, I really liked the movie when I first saw it and I watched it a couple times over. And this one kind of sunk for me a little bit. Some of it was just, just analyzing it. Maybe I wasn't analyzing it the first time I saw it. Why is this uh, voiceover narration happening? And then it disappears. And a few things in the writing that just didn't quite work. Other things in there are plot-wise are quite clever. I mean, there's a scene in a bar, which is really, re really something else, where accidentally Lawrence Harvey's character is given a command that he wasn't supposed to be given, and showing the brainwashing and helping Sinatra to figure out what's what's happening. Uh, that performance really lowered the overall film to me several notches, which I, I don't know if it's Frank Andrew's fault, really, or anybody else involved, but it, it, it was to me, of the featured performers, the weakest uh, performance in the film. Most definitely. The hardest to believe 
and the hardest to sympathize with. And that's important because at the end, given what happens, do we need to issue a spoiler alert? Yeah, and I said spoilers at the beginning. And yeah, so if you haven't seen either version of The Manchurian Candidate, uh, maybe watch it before you listen to the rest of this review. At the end, his character does the right thing, despite all of the uh, the programming. And that feels like it it's not believable. And I think that's because we haven't been able to have any empathy for that character till now, other than in the general sense that, you know, the poor guy is obviously a puppet of someone who's manipulated and controlled him. But they do go out of their way a few times to remind everyone that he really wasn't likable, no matter what anyone else said. But he was a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. didn't like him. So maybe that part of the choice that was made there. Like I maybe. felt a lot more his 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 girlfriend friend fiance, which was kind of this strange subplot where Angela Lansbury steered her away from him because her father was politically opposite. But then she manipulates things so that they get back together. That part was all strange. But I felt a lot more for her and her father when their fate befalls them than I did at the end. And and that's that's a problem, I guess. I, I'm thinking of the um, the the remake version. Uh, Liev Schreiber it played the Manchurian Candidate in that I, I still think the only time I've fully gone on board with him was Ray Donovan but he he worked in that role because he had a stiffness to him and this kind of uh, monotone delivery but there was no doubt that he's American and it just looked like a little bit of laziness unfortunately from Lawrence Harvey is it enough to sink the ship I don't think so this movie the black and white version is considered a bit of a classic yeah I would have people check it out there's some genuinely creepy horrifying scenes again not knowing and the first time you're watching this and and then when you watch it in subsequent uh, times you can admire how well directed it is and particularly i just go back to that dream sequence uh we're in the garden party and then we find out what's actually going on that's beautifully directed and beautifully shot and definitely a highlight of the film and you have to check out angela lansbury's performance and i agree with you it's one of sinatra's best as well We're going way back 1915. This would certainly be the oldest movie I've reviewed on this show. It's called mm. The Birth of a Nation, directed by D.W. Griffith. It's a movie that would never be released today. It is a silent film, which is long, but it was the first Hollywood feature-length film, and it became an enormous hit. And the fact was that Griffith 
was connected to the Ku Klux Klan, and he presents a alternate version, let's say, of the Civil War and a little bit the years after the Civil War, which, believe it or not, turns the story of the South into one where the Ku Klux Klan, as it developed, were the heroes of what was going on in the U.S. So it could never happen again. The thing that's frustrating is there are this movie should make people mad when they watch it, but you also have to admit that it is, for that time, a very well-made film. So what we'll be wrestling with here is that it's an important movie. I first saw it in Don Kerr's film class when I was in second year university, and it's one he showed because of his historical importance, and I think you can have a discussion about it if you're willing to sit through the film and have a discussion about it. I know a lot of people that just honestly could not sit through this, and I w- this was the one of the four I was most nervous to show you. I don't know if you had seen it before because it, it is tough. So at the same time as I'm writing things that I like about it as a film, I'm writing a lot of stuff about it that I am morally opposed to. And so that's kind of going to be the, the the awkward position in in, uh, in 2020 reviewing this 105-year-old film. So what, what did you think of The Birth of a Nation? Well, like everyone, I had trouble sitting through quite a bit of it. It's also, I, I haven't seen seen very many serious films back in that time. I've seen hundreds, it feels like hundreds of films by the likes of Charlie Chaplin. And uh, at that time, Chaplin wasn't doing his serious stuff, his serious comedy, you know, like The Great Dictator. And, and he Buster, made a, a film. Buster, yeah, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, well, their films were often about funny looking chase scenes, you know, they were comedies. Certain political questions, though, found their way into Chaplin films, which is also important because I thought he dealt with an awful lot of serious social issues in a brilliant way using his comedy. And so I was trying to be fair to Griffiths in that, though I obviously passionately disagree with him, but what he believed was right. I was trying to look at this as though he's trying to do the same kind of thing as Chaplin was trying to do, make statements about social issues. He wasn't using humor to do it and I really had to force myself to try to do that. The antidote to this film is a a Buster Keaton movie called The General which is also set this time in the Civil War. It's comedy but it it actually has quite a bit uh, to say as a historical piece as well and again would be on a, a different perspective yeah. than than Griffiths but what was curious or maybe interesting to me about this is in in all of the all of the politics and for trying to understand the history of the United States and why there are people that are still stuck in this white supremacist mindset we can trace back the history to the thinking here of people feeling like after the civil war slaves were freed that they were going to be attacked and they were going to lose their land and their wives and daughters were going to be raped and all this stuff, even though it's a gross exaggeration in the film. Why they felt that they needed to create this rather racist, horrible group to defend their way of life. And they feel like they lost the Civil War and they've been trying to defend their way of life, which is quite different than other parts of the United States. And in many ways, they they feel like they found a president who sides with them now with Donald Trump after all of these years. And now people like this have been emboldened, but people don't recognize that they're villains. Like those who are part of these groups yeah. think that they are doing right. And so this is us, if we're wanting to, to like get serious about a dialectical conversation about the history 
history of the United States, we need to sort of see how people got to this place where they thought this way, whether we agree with it or not. So that's me in a sideways way, way of sort of defending the film, even though I don't want to defend the film's ideas. But what was interesting to me about it is the rather kind portrayal of Abraham Lincoln. Because I had yes. this idea, I watched the movie three times. I watched it in Don Kerr's class. I acquired a copy of it because I was kind of collecting these rare movies. And then I watched it then. But I, I had this uh, you know, false memory that it was kind of a, a negative portrayal of Lincoln. But looking at it closely for this, in many ways, they, they show Lincoln has this compassion, even for people that are you know fighting against his cause. And so I think D.W. Griffith did not want to... I, I just think Lincoln's one of those presidents who's untouchable, right? And they he did not want to criticize Lincoln and actually does a pretty good like one of my favorite sequences is the whole assassination of Lincoln like beautifully staged beautifully directed and it shows how how that happened I mean that is a film by itself is terrific but unfortunately we have all of this other stuff where we have white actors in blackface and they're eating fried chicken and eating watermelons and like every single racist thing you could come up with and and are then breaking into these homes and threatening threatening the safety of these families and and like our, our hero character who was a Civil War veteran mobilizes the Ku Klux Klan to ride in at the last minute to reclaim the South. I mean, that, that's the story of this this film. And it's, I mean, there's lo- he had elaborate battle scenes, a huge cast of people. It all had to be well choreographed and the composition of the shots is great. It was a very ambitious film for 1915. He was certainly a visionary, but, you know, I yeah. guess how he was raised. So that's, I, I think my points total no. was low. And then I went back to it thinking, well, yeah, but it's a well-made film. And it's, it, it's like the whole idea of tearing down the monuments, right? And I, I agree, they should not be displayed to continually hurt people who have been victims of these former heroes of the South and um, slave owners and... But I think they should be preserved and put in a museum so that there can be a bit of a educational narrative about, okay, this is what happened. Let's not let this happen again, right? I think this film should be used in that way to sort of say, okay, this is where this racist philosophy uh, comes from, but... Let's make sure that this is not, you know, the message that gets out to generations in the future. But I'm sure there are people out there that would love to grab every copy of it and and burn it and destroy it because of the messages in it. Well, of course there are. Just as there are people out there who would say that no human being should ever again listen to the speeches of Adolf Hitler or read his books. Well, seeing the speeches is our best defense against being manipulated by someone like him again. So there's a very, an equally strong argument for insisting that everyone see them. I mean, you don't protect people by hiding things from them. You don't protect them from those things. You don't protect someone from the dangers of grizzly bears in the mountains by pretending like there are no grizzly bears in the mountains. It's just foolishness. I mean, we don't ignore the story of Charles Manson and pretend that serial killers don't exist. I mean, we examine, not embrace, but examine evil so that we can stop evil from happening. But we also have to be careful to not exaggerate the nature of it in order to create an exaggerated sense of fear and then manipulate that. I think 
on the positive side with this film, Griffiths could have done that with his Lincoln Trail, but didn't. And that's a good thing. I think part of the reason for that is that he was, as filmmakers of the day went, he was considered a realist. Of course, back then, film was decades behind the other arts. They, he was one of the first to discover realism, and he was taking baby steps with it at the same time as Ibsen was a household word and had been had already gotten beyond where he started with realism. Yeah. And, and in fact, his plays were realism, and this film isn't. This film is a strange intermingling of some realism and a lot of melodrama. The melodrama shows much more obviously in part two, when he really goes out of his way to paint monsters and angels, with the exception, of course, of, of the assassination scene that you mentioned. But it's, it's not a success as an example of realism because part and becomes melodrama. So it's many works of literature, novels too, in which uh, the critics condemned a piece for not sticking with his guns and being all realism or all naturalism or all. In my head, I'm reliving moments in English classes, moments of discussion of the works of Theodore Dreiser. So I think as filmmakers go, yes, he was probably farther along the road, but there are other much more successful examples of realism. And one of the points of realism was to look at the world as it actually is, not to see it through very tinted lenses. And this film has a painfully tinted lens. And when it comes to what one does about one's racism, he justifies it, and that's dangerous. I mean, I feel like it, if I give this lots of points, then there's, you know, it's accusation that I'm promoting something. But I, I think it's not something you just show somebody and you don't have a discussion about it. Like, you have to have some educational piece connected to it. Otherwise... Yeah. I think that's true for all of us now, given that most people be. are look, would be looking at a film that was made 100 years before their birth in a lot of cases. I mean, if a movie from 2010 is considered old in this world, I mean, looking at something from 1915 has got to be, like, you know, just just unheard of. Modern audiences wouldn't necessarily have the patience for this film, too. I'm, I'm afraid but you know for somebody to watch it and just not analyze it and just sort of accept the message i don't think that's healthy for any film i mean you mentioned oliver stone before he has some films which are quite biased he, he does it intentionally as kind of like a an essay on film type of thing and then this is just perhaps an essay on film but we don't personally don't like the message that's being sent but part of it is to refute it and discuss it i am hearing that we both think is a well-made film. Yeah, well, I think there's some things about it that are extremely well-made. Yeah. I'm not sure it's as well-made as some people give it credit for. I, I don't mean you. I mean some others that I've heard calling it a brilliant piece of filmmaking, even if it's offensive. It's not quite, and, and it isn't because of how it falls apart as storytelling. It's just towards the end, I think really does fall apart i mean it becomes oh especially yeah especially that. realism is supposed to have a basis in reality it's not journalism but that can't explain for example just to pick one specific item the size of the clan army that comes riding to the rescue well we all know that the clan had large membership all over the southern united states but i doubt that somewhere approaching 500 of them were ever in the same place at the same time unless there was some big convention around the corner and griffith's kind of missed including that point so for, for me he threw out his own his own filmmaking rule was it's got to be real he threw it out in order to make this this melodramatic state that's not i mean i think it the, the battle pieces are strong the setups are strong that, that all of that looks good but yeah if you start thinking about some of that stuff it's it's yeah it doesn't sense that they would win the battle even though they're meant to sort of be the underdogs and really like it, this whole notion of where they get the white sheet from where they see this these 
these kids playing and one is dressed up like a ghost and scares some children okay that's what we can use i mean all of that is is very is very difficult to uh, believe and difficult to sort of watch in there uh, I, I wanted to do a the most famous actor from this was lillian gish uh, yeah. was, uh quite a famous um silent film actor she had a a certain look and a certain presence. I, you know, I, I actually think uh, Henry B. Whitehall, who plays Ben Cameron, he's also known as the Little Colonel. I think kind of gives the best performance. He's very much the hero. We we see how he's affected by war, what life is like before, during. There's a little bit more realism in his performance. It makes sense. He turns into the hero near the end in kind of kind of a goofy way. But I I, I think he's good. And a lot of the extras are way too big. Yeah, and blatant overacting, but. Yeah. But that was the norm. So to see yeah. a film in which in, in which many of several of the performers, at least in the significant roles, are not doing that are, and are much more realistic, that's impressive. And another thing that impressed me about the film is the the way in which they conveyed a lot of the story without the subtitle, without the yeah. title frame. In fact, if you take away many of the title frames, you have a, a more realistic film. The frames themselves are so politically charged and tainted with with uh, racism and fascist ideas, although the word fascism wasn't quite as well known back then, but all, all those ideas were there. But that said, they did a very good job of visual storytelling, especially in the early parts of the film. And, and the times in the second part too, except when he loses his, his brain cells and allows his film to become blatant and most pathetic melodrama. Uh, however, yeah, there are many things about it that were surprisingly good for 1910. Yeah. That's the second reason why it needs to be seen. The real reason is how, how it reveals in a way that's accessible, more accessible to people like us who believe that those racist ideals are among the most offensive things out there in the world. It's difficult to understand how someone would, would have those beliefs. And it's useful to try to find out where they come from because you can't do anything about them if you don't know where they come from. You can scream against them, but like screaming into the face of a Trump supporter, you're supporting a monster. That doesn't get you anywhere not gonna change just like when telling young people that they need to follow covid protocols and trying to shame them into doing it it's not working so just no. have to find another another way to do this and yeah i yeah i, I agree and i've I've certainly been the the angry young man screaming about his way is the right way for and probably still fall into that habit at times. But I I kind of maybe in some strange way see the value of this film more than when I was in university. And I think first time watching it, I was just trying to process what this thing was without knowing like the the dangerous messages behind it. But I don't <laughs> think we should be banning it or that right. No it because I, I think it is it is a window into a sadly the thinking of some people in 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 2020 and more people unfortunately than we were willing to admit four years ago and before that so yeah yeah it's a cautionary tale and we need to have cautionary tales this one didn't intend to be a cautionary tale that it has that potentially it could be for all of us but and it still is if you are interested uh, in the history of film and how it came to be I think this is one that you you should check out. There is only one America. No democratic rivers. No Republican mountains. Just this great land and all that's possible on it with a fresh start. Cures we can find. Futures we can shape. Work to reward. Dignity to protect. 
There is so much we can do if we choose to take on problems and not each other and choose a president who brings out our best. Joe Biden doesn't need everyone in this country to always agree. Just to agree, we all love this country and go from there. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. Tom, thank you so much. This has been kind of a little bit of a, a whirlwind putting the show together, and we you weren't even necessarily prepared to record uh, the show tonight. I was recording another show where we had technical problems, so I was, I was set up to record a podcast, and you jumped in here, so thanks for doing that. No uh, problem. And you, you have been a critic on the most shows in the history of this this podcast now with your fourth appearance. I'm, so I'm honored. And we, we, we will still uh, we'll go for a lighter show when we talk about those all those different trailers those coming attraction shows uh, in the not-too-distant future. All right, so 40 points to work with this time. So I'm going to start off with you, as I always do. How many points are you giving Amistad? Okay, well, the points distribution, that's the part of tonight I wasn't quite ready for. I quickly scrambled that uh, earlier on, and then the whole time I've been modifying and adjusting oh. a little bit. Well, there were some things I hadn't thought about enough yet or needed to refresh my memory about looking through the notes and listening to you. Anyway, Amistad, I'm giving 11. And double. 12. Manchurian Candidate. 9. And The Birth of a Nation. 8. All right. In some ways, we're, we're very, very close. And it's going to be interesting to, to kind of add this up and figure it out. We're very close. I, I gave Amistad 10. I, I think I was harder on it than you were. It is a movie that I I, I do admire what they were trying to do. I, I just think there's a, a couple of flaws in it. Particularly, I think that it would have been interesting to tell the story purely from the slave's perspective as opposed to to the politicians and the white lawyers. W, I just, I just really, really enjoyed, and we actually have exactly the same twelve points for W. It's, it's it somehow. I mean, there's very serious stuff that it touches on throughout, but it was almost a relief to see something that looked back on fonder times, which is kind of a strange thing because I didn't think that it could be worse than W. Bush at the the, the beginning of this century, and as as bad as he was, I would take him in a heartbeat over over Trump. So Josh Brolin. And I just really want to uh, praise that performance of the balance between comedic, cartoonish George W. Bush and making him into a, a, a real human being in his portrayal. It wouldn't have been that easy to do uh, when that movie came out. And, and as you mentioned, the uh, film does such a great job of showing him as a human being. And presidents are only human beings. And, and even his father, who was kind of a bit larger than life as a president, is shown here to be a human being. He has his flaws, has his flaws as a father. Ultimately, Ultimately, though, as a father, he loved his son yeah. and wanted his son to be happy and successful. And I think Very his son wonderful. didn't realize that the successful was the second thing on the list. Manchurian Candidate, pretty hard on it. It is a, a, a worthwhile early 1960s thriller, but I gave it eight points. Uh, so still pretty close. You gave it nine. And Birth of a Nation, again, very much between a rock and a hard place, which uh, adds up to 10, as it happens for me. I do not promote the ideas, but I think in the history of film and what he did with what Griffith did with what he had in 1915 to make that film and we take all the racist stuff out you know it, it is an achievement but it's a film that has to be seen in context and there has to be education provided with it I wouldn't just blindly show it to people because they will get offended or who knows who knows so 
it has to be handled just right. And and so I, I gave it 10, which may be more than it deserves, but I I just couldn't. Initially, I was quite low with it, and then I, I kind of thought about it, and okay, am I punishing the ideas, or am I punishing the film? And I think it's it's a good film, just the, the filmmaker and his upbringing and what he was trying to promote as a bit of a propaganda film and an alternate version of history is, is dangerous, but maybe explains a few things about a, a racist mindset that has permeated the history of the United States of America. So uh, where that leaves things is the most points went to W with 24 points. Amistad was second with 21 points. The Birth of the Nation got 18 points. And the movie that leaves my movie collection, perhaps a little bit of a cheat because I have two copies of it. So I have to be honest with, I, I ended up with two somehow. But uh, The Manchurian Candidate is a movie that has to leave my movie collection. So this particular copy, the one that you have in your house right now. So what am I to do with the Manchurian candidate. Believe it or not, that's that's an easy one to answer. I'm not sure what I would have said if the birth of a nation had been at the bottom of the list. The Manchurian candidate. Think of all the people you know. Of those people, who is the greatest Angela Lansbury fan? I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you. Might be worth asking, because I think you should give that film to the greatest Angela Lansbury fan you can find. And so I think it was close. Like These, these movies were very close. <laughs> so yeah. uh, again, I, I do, I think there, there's a danger in this there's a lot of like uh, American bashing can happen by Canadians and other people around the world I do mm-hmm. I've lived in the United States I care about that country and that's why I focus on it quite a bit and I've always kind of followed American politics since I was young I, I really really hope that the best result and a result that leads to some sort of normalcy and peace in the United States comes out of this presidential election and it I mean it may it may be tough and it might be like John Quincy Adam said that there needs to be tension before they can sort of get get back to a place where the Republic works. But the last four years, absolutely nothing about it has worked with uh, Trump. And so I, I can't see, but again, talk to me like 20 years uh, ago, I, I didn't see a worse president than George W. Bush. And here we are with, I cannot see how there could be anybody less qualified and make more of a mess of governance than this guy. The only person I can think of off the top of my head is the guy governor of florida who seems like an even bigger idiot open to beaches when they're in the middle of the serious part of the pandemic in the spring like uh, honestly it was for to have the spring break and get that the tourist dollars i mean i'm not even sure trump would have done that i i do hope as flawed as joe biden is he cares about america he get cares about working people and i think him and uh, kamala harris will make a great team going forward and i know that they will have intelligent people back in again they won't be firing intelligent people they'll be bringing intelligent people in from both sides of the aisle to try to solve the problems that are happening in the united states uh just before i go as, as always i I want to do a shout out to my friend Larry Parsons show rank and review. Please check that out. By the time this episode airs, he'll be into his new season of uh, shows. And I also want to uh, do a shout out to uh, Kurt Fitzpatrick. I now uh, seemingly regular guest. You will be hearing from him quite soon on a, a Paul Newman episode. And Kurt has a podcast called a lifetime of Hallmark where him and some others review Hallmark and lifetime movies. Thanks Tom for uh, taking this on here. And I know that we will hear back from you again and everybody out there please be safe be kind to each other and keep supporting the movies